out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. This is true. And um, yes, as you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade that was the 80s. Sometimes before, sometimes after, but who knows? And who cares? We also love a special guest. This week it's going to be a turn of a legendary band. This is We've Got a Fuzzbox and we're going to use it because I spoke to Maggie Dunn to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. This is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, as you do, we started talking about the good old days. Yes, the world that is in, was indie when indie was really independent and the amount of material bands, labels, fanzines there were and clubs, it was incredible. Anyway, this is, uh, this is Maggie's reply. Maggie, it's over to you. It really was, you know, so if it was the very sort of DIY and, uh, you know, sort of get up and go kind of time. Yes. And I can, um, yes, because I was born in the mid, um, God, you get to that age, you have to think now, don't you? Um, mid 60s. So I'm in my mid 50s now. But sort of, I grew up during this sort of 70s period of glam and, and I didn't really get into punk because I was still quite young then. But it was kind of like the kind of 80s was my decade. So it's always kind of curious. What was your kind of musical kind of time, you know, through those formative 80s years? Do you mean when I was quite young? Yeah, I suppose, you know, I, I, I can vaguely remember music when I was much younger, but that was like a bit hazy like the Carpenters. But it was kind of, you know, the early 70s with people like... I don't know, the Sweet and Gary Glitter and T-Rex and people like that, that sort of, you know, Top of the Pops was quite of a big thing and listening to the Top 40 on a Sunday evening was also a quite a major event in our house for some reason. So I was kind of curious what your sort of, yeah, formative years were like. Well, so if you tend to listen to the music that goes on sort of in the house, so music that your parents listen to and... So, so there was a lot of Irish music, um, which is really good. Um, one of the best bands I've ever seen live, the Dubliners, um, just incredible musicians. Um, but other than that, um, I, was, I started learning the piano when I was about 13, just 13 and a half. So I started to get into quite a lot of classical music. Um, and I really, really loved classical music, um, possibly because I was, brought up in a very working class area so nobody really knew what classical music was um, and I didn't realise that you know so if I really shouldn't be liking it which was quite quite a good thing um, but also so if there was stuff that you know we, we'd have I'd really like like Johnny Cash and the Beatles and stuff like that and then as a teenager I really liked um you know I liked Donny Osmond well when I was nine I liked Donny Osmond actually nine ten um, but I did meet him later in life but that was that was um very <laughs> really cool um but you know so I used to like I, I liked Sweet and T-Rex and I liked Gary Glitter before we all you know found out about him yeah. but um <laughs> um I liked yeah I I liked quite quite a lot of stuff. I didn't like a lot of disco, I seem to remember as a teenager. 
and then you know sort of um but as I grew older I I, I did quite like some disco yes well I think I was quite intimidated because I mean to be honest I grew up in a kind of very I suppose it was a kind of the countryside in a village and it was very kind of working class so there wasn't really discotheques but if you did go to the village hall disco I found it incredibly intimidating actually because I couldn't dance <laughs> I couldn't you know I felt very self-conscious as a young person I probably still am but I'm sort of I mask it now really with uh, pretending to be Morrissey in his golden period not in his latter years so um yeah disco just felt very yeah and also you were standing there being watched so that felt really intimidating as well so when did you what was your kind of first kind of concert and records that you bought okay my first record the first record that I ever bought was Terry Jack's Season in the Sun which I'm actually quite proud of because that's actually a Jacques Brel song so um I liked a good songwriting um song from get-go um and then first band that I went to see was Depeche Mode supported by Blumange God, you are cool. That is really good. Yeah, I, I am on time. Very <laughs> well, Terry, I do remember Terry Jacks because there was a lot of those. There was Harry Nilsson's I Can't Live If, if Living Is Without You. Without you, yeah. And, I mean, they were so incredible, you know, and Seasons in the Sun was just, you know, you could tell there was something quite sad and, and sort of fatalistic in that song, even as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old at the time. So it was quite dramatic. I mean... Yeah, it was almost... I was an early uptake goth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I must admit, it was the lyrics and, and the work of the Carpenters that really got me at an early age, because I I didn't realise. But I think if you like the Carpenters, you're going to like... I do, I do. I love Karen Carpenter. Oh, God. And the, and the lyrics that they sung, you know, I mean, it was only... It was obvious that you're going to like Joy Division and the, and the Smiths later on in life, because it was all about sort of sadness and loneliness and alienation and failed love i mean what what not to like you know so it was, you know and rainy days and mondays which was just like wow that is such a poignant song so that was probably one of my earliest influences with the carpenters really just lyrically it was just stunning so then as we trucked into the 80s did you yeah. did you miss the punk kind of period a bit um yes but you know so if was aware of the music but you know, so it wasn't in on the scene. It, although there was in Birmingham, there was the Australian bar, which was in the eighties, which was still kind of punk. Um, so you know, so used to go in there. Um, but so if it was, so if there was punks and new romantics, and then so if that new romantics kind of faded more than punk, didn't it? Really, because punk's still there. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, so then that sort of gave way to new romantic sort of early electronica, um, sort of. Although there was a bit of crossover, wasn't there? Like, there was bands like um, SPK and all that kind of industrial sort of early where you know, sort of where dance music started, really. I, I love SPK, um, just. Blooming so ahead of their time, um, and seeing them live as well, you know, so you wouldn't just wouldn't be allowed to do what they did live, but um, now for health and safety, but <laughs> oh no, so good. Did you ever see them? No, I didn't, but it was quite funny. Oh, they had chainsaws and stuff. I seem to like, remember there was a lot of bands that used to be on the tube that seemed to be sort of 
kind of doing welding and things like that. Which yeah, is... yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And it was so spectacular. And they'd wear these sort of um, martial arts sort of, I can't remember what, what they're called, but the sort of black outfits, really dramatic and big sticks and do all sorts of things. It was just like, it was so good, so theatrical. Um, yeah, I loved them. But yeah, so that, that sort of in Birmingham, you kind of fell into, and also there was, gosh, there was um, a sort of psychedelic scene as well. So it was, it was quite mixed. Yeah, because cause be, being from East Anglia, you know, in the Norwich area, we, I have to, we do feel a bit, envious because you know we had like the farmers boys the higsons and serious drinking to be honest not really cherry red records are never going to do a compilation on the norwich scene from 1978 to 1989 are they i love the farmers boys excellent i'm glad you stood up for them there because frankly the name used to make me cringe and there's pictures of them with pigs just made me think oh my god that's just so <laughs> that's so that's, on and sitting on tractors you know you had everything else looked really exciting and we had the Farmers Boys. So I'm pleased that you mentioned that you love them because... Oh, they were great. It was good. And um, But occasionally I, still, I see pictures of them in their glory days. And frankly, it's like, God, that is, that is so country, really. There was not country music, but just like, we were behind the times. I can see why Alan Partridge loved this kind of area for his comedy, really. <laughs> but but you had everything going on. You had, you know, you had the sort of the two-tone explosion. But you, you also had this stuff like the cravats and the very things and... I don't know the Nightingales. I mean, there was a there was a lot, and also you had Black Sabbath and Duran Duran. I mean, what not to like? So it was it was kind of a pretty exciting period. And and the same when I've spoke to people from Manchester and Liverpool and Glasgow and even Leeds, you know, it's like there was a lot happening and a lot of a you know a big scene really. So yeah. even, that must have been slightly feeding into the the DNA. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, so we had influences from everywhere, really. Yes, I know. And now Stu and Stuart Lino sort of talks about the Midlands with great enthusiasm, doesn't he, in a lot of his jokes, So, um, <laughs> which is always nice. He's lovely, Stuart Lee, isn't he? We do love him. Oh, and I think even Ted Chippington came from the Midlands, didn't he? Yes, yeah, he did, yeah. Okay, we all... did gigs with Ted Chippington. Yeah, actually... God, I now remember I bought the, I did buy that 12-inch rocking with Rita. Mm -hmm. Who did? I know everyone must say that to you, but um, <laughs> that you meet. Um, so that was <laughs> exciting. So as the 80s trucked on, because I've got indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which to be honest are the years of the Smiths, because there was kind of a bit of a golden period for us indie kids mm. with pasty complexions and bad dance moves. Before that, you know, it had been a bit jangly, not jangly, it had been a bit, I don't know, there was wire, there was... Um, public image wasn't there there was kind of like those kind of edgy bands that felt quite of quite edgy really they were probably on drugs um and then you had the early sort of simple minds and you too then then the smiths came along and it was definitely a oh okay then there's definitely a thing going on here so as the 80s progressed and also we'd had you know that that kind of the Falkland period and war and then we had the minor strike hey, what not to like and there was, so there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of you know, despondency and there was lots of programs on television about the wasted youth so how were you navigating the 80s at that point politically well or... no just just where you know were you still at school college or were you um so in in the 80s i was sort of 
late teens, early twenties to late twenties. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yes, good. Yeah, I... so yeah, I was. Yeah, it. it um, yeah, so I I worked in a dole office when I left school, um, which was hysterical. Um, I. <laughs> Um, I changed my appearance um, after I'd got the job and, you know, I had the bright red hair and everything. And I went for um, a promotion interview and uh, they sort of were asking me questions and what have you. And then one of them said, um, well, Miss Dunn, um, your appearance is, is quite striking. Um, don't, do you not think that this might put some people off? And... Um, I said, well, actually, I said, I have to know my job inside out because if somebody comes in complaining about a small girl with brown hair, that could be anyone. That's immediately recognisable. And that's what got me the job that got me promoted. Wow. I thought that was quite kind of cool, though, isn't it? Take it and flip it around. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but at said job, um, the band started and we got, an offer of a record deal and I had to decide whether to you know because I had a mortgage and and everything you know so if um I'd left home bought bought a house with my boyfriend and um I had to choose between so because I was up for another promotion um between you know having a glittering career in the civil service or being in a pop band then one Thursday afternoon I remember I was in the office and I looked around and everybody looked so fucking miserable. And I left and never went back. <laughs> yeah. That was it. I was just like, what the hell are you thinking, woman? Just look. You know, if it doesn't work out, you can come back to this. But, you know, so just give it a go. Wow. That was quite a brave decision, actually. I mean, there's one thing, you know, renting and sort of thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, we can always go back to the parents, but actually sort of having a mortgage, which just seems a very grown-up thing to do in the 80s, actually, because was it difficult to get hold of a mortgage at that time? Uh, not really. Um, you know, so if, when you look back, house prices were so cheap and, you know, so if it was, you know, just it was a lot cheaper than renting and, you know, so my boyfriend and I just, decided we'd buy this flat it was really lovely as well really lovely flat excellent so when when did sort of the, the thought or the um yes the, the move to, to be in a band start well it was when we were offered um the potential of signing to wea which so we we recorded the first album and that was licensed through wea and then so WEA um, offered us a, a proper contract. So, you know, so if that's when it became uh, a, a reality, if you like. Yes. But going yeah. back, because you were on Vindaloo Records with Boston mm -hmm. Steve Austin, and mm -hmm. that was 86. So mm -hmm. had the band been together very long before then? No. No. <laughs> Because <laughs> most bands have worked, you know, it's like, yeah. I suppose it's doing these interviews. I realise most 
especially the 80s, they, there's a bit of a five-year narrative, isn't there? You know, they get together mainly because they're unemployed and they've just, you know, got not, not, not much else happening apart from taking drink, you know, drug, drugs and drinking a bit, you know, and claiming Job Seekers Alliance or Enterprise Alliance, which obviously you must have been aware of but not having to do yourself. Well, absolutely. I, I used to be the person that, you know, would um, decide how how you'd get dealt with. Yes, well, I was going to say, because the interesting thing is you had to have a £1,000 in your bank account, which considering the doll was about £33.20p, suddenly having a £1,000 seemed to be quite obviously something quite odd going on in someone's life. But it was enough to people, for a lot of people in the office to say, yep, that's fine, you know, on the Creative Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were the person who said, yes, you've got a year? No, no, no. I, I... Basically, I I did a couple of things whilst I was worked in the computer room, which was hysterical. Managed to make the computer go backwards. Bad. Um, then I worked on the desk. So with new claimants, um, you would direct them. You'd signpost them to to other things if they were eligible, um, and you do reviews with people. So you'd signpost people um, to to other places. Um, and then sort of my favourites, though, my favourite job, two two favourite jobs, actually, thinking about it. Uh, one was doing the daily and weekly signers who were generally the homeless or people sort of doing more creative jobs. So they'd have to sign weekly or sign daily. Um, I loved doing doing that. And then the other was... Um, deciding whether people were eligible for um, immediate payment um, when they'd left their jobs. So they had to have a really good reason for leaving their job um, if they resigned. And I'd read all these um, statements and, or if they got sacked, you know, was it unfair dismissal? You know, was that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd read all these things and sort of decide whether it was um they were eligible or not and you can imagine i was very very generous (laughs) (laughs) my favorite though i've got to tell you this my favorite was this man wrote this really plaintive narrative of how he sort of loved his job he used to you know described going into work you know, how he loved chatting with his friends and, you know, sort of how, you know, it wasn't the most creative job in the world, but, you know, what he got out of it, you know, sort of sense of pride and, you know, sort of blah, blah, blah. This went on for quite a bit. And then he gets to, and then one day they installed piped music and that was it. My life was over. I couldn't deal with it. And he's describing some of the music that was like in this pipe music. And I just thought that's a completely fucking valid reason for yeah. leaving your job. <laughs> so he went straight on benefits. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's a classic, actually. God. Poor man, can you imagine loving your job and then they do something like that? And you just think, I just can't deal with those. I just can't. Oh, God. You'll have to do the... Yeah, yes, there was restart interviews, weren't there? God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was... Yeah, restarts. I, I, again, you know, so if, if people got me, I, 
basically, unless, you know, so they were just like awful, awful, terrible people, I'd just let them go. Or, you know, so I'd ask them the questions again. Like, so you, you're, you're sure you haven't been um, applying for 17 jobs an hour? you quite sure about that (laughs) you sure you absolutely before I put it down you sure have a think about that one (laughs) and you know see and honestly I mean I was if people knew what I was doing they probably did but um you know I was just like really nice to people yes I mean actually helped them I mean it was such a little bit of money as well it really wasn't kind of yeah, universal credit is the only way, isn't it? In a way. Well, do you know, so if I know that so if some people in Dole offices are, are horrible. And that was that was the same when I was, you know, there. There were some people who were absolute twats. But most people, you know, even if they're having to do what they're having to do, because sometimes you just have to tell people, you know, there was one guy who um, gave up his job to be a carer, which of course now would be perfectly legitimate, his, um, his daughter had got brain cancer, right? And I had to tell him that he couldn't because he'd been a headmaster and um, his, his wife had left, his daughter had got brain cancer and he was the only person that could look after her. And I had to tell him no. Oh, God, that was hard. I cried. Yeah. I, I, not only me, there wasn't just me, that virtually half, and do you know I'm feeling teary now, virtually half the office because we were trying to find a way of trying to, to make sure this guy was, was, was all right. But, you know, so we couldn't, we couldn't because, you know, sort of he'd, earned, I think it, it was, I can't remember the exact reason, but because of the amount of money he was earning, it was assumed he could get paid help, I think, yeah. was was the reason. If I, I might be mistaken on that, but I think that was it um, because headmasters obviously earn a lot of money. Yeah. But, um, mm. You know, it was just so harsh. But there was nothing. There was no get-out-of-jail-free card for that one. Oh, that was a tricky one. So, look, back, in, back as we truck into the 80s and we're midway yeah. And the band has formed. How did you meet the other three? I mean, did you also look across the room in a crowded pub and went, my God, I think we could be in a band? Or was it, you know, a a notice in a post office? Well, I met my sister in my house. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's often, that's that's good, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's where I met her. Um, And then... Joe was at school with Vix and Tina. Right. Were they all so, the same age? Yeah, they were all four years younger than me, four or five years younger than me. And um, But I used to, they used to hang out at the same clubs as me. They were all, do you know, because I've looked younger than my years for most of my life. Um, it's catching up with me now, but um, so when I was young, we'd go out clubbing. They'd get in no problem, and I'd be asked my age. It was just really, <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, so we all used to go to the same clubs. Yes. And and what was the kind of reason for sort of thinking, yes, let's do a band? Because that's that's quite an interesting moment. I mean, did did you all sort of have your instruments? Obviously. No. 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 No, it didn't happen like that. What happened was we were at a nightclub and a friend of our mine actually was um he he was in a band um called the Bang Sisters and he said, Oh, we're playing on Sunday but we don't have a support band. And I was with my sister and I just looked at her and I said, we'll, we'll do something. We'll, we'll just do something, just thinking we'd have a laugh, you know, get up on stage and just lark about. And so that's what we agreed to do. So we went off and we found Vix and Tina and said, do you want to be in a band? And they said, yes, just in a nightclub. And just that was that. And so meet round mine um because I had the house obviously the flat um and I had a cellar and so we practiced in the cellar on the afternoon of the gig so we had about three or four hours rehearsal then went off we'd never played any of these instruments before went off on the bus to the barrel organ and played our first gig wow that is the that is the fastest band in the world, isn't it, actually? That was... Do you know, it may well be. <laughs> it was... They, they, no, I've never heard, heard of all these interviews, anybody who managed to get it together quite that quickly. You know, there is, there is a certain amount of time and struggle, but you definitely, you definitely went straight to number one on that one, didn't you? There was so, no messing about. <laughs> it was no messing about. And how come... You, so who decided what to play? Oh, that was random. Um, well, Vix wanted to be the lead singer. Um, so we had to have somebody drumming. And we used to swap um, a drumming. And there was saxophone in some of it. So, so Tina would play that. So when she was playing saxophone, somebody had to play bass. Um, so it was... You know, so it, it was random. I never played guitar, but I, I did play bass and drums. Um, so Tina played bass and sax, and Vix sang and played drums, and Joe played guitar, um, bass, and drums. Wow. And can you remember the set that you put together? Yeah. On the first gig. Um, it was console me fever, um, and uh, what was the other? Oh, spirit in the sky. Classic. That was number one, wasn't it, for a long time in the eighties? Doctor and yeah. the medics. So yeah. did you want? Um, I mean, you know, because you you had a very distinct sound. Did you? Was that the sound that you had on that first gig? I I really don't know how we got through that first gig. We were walking around. And we called at that time we called Leeds wires. Um, where does the wires go? The sound people looked at us like we were sent from hell. Um, and, you know, so we eventually worked out. It just basically we my boyfriend at the time had some equipment. That's where we borrowed. We borrowed all of his equipment. Um and we just used what was there and we used the fuzz bots to cover up, um, you know, the inability to play at the time. Yes, good, good. Yes, go for the, 
the feedback. That's always a good way. So then after the gig, did it feel like you're all on a high thinking, actually, that was good. We should we should continue this. That wasn't just a bad idea. Well, the thing was, so when we'd finished the three songs <laughs> set, um, there was like a moment of silence, I think. I think people were just like deciding whether that was actually one of the worst things they'd ever seen or one of the best. And th they came down on one of the best. And uh, so so we got an encore and we ha we, they chose um, a song for us to, out of our set to play again. And then that same band, because we went down so well, said, you know, so if you've got to do this, uh, another gig with us so we did we said yes and then after that second gig we got signed yes and this was this with you know Robert Lloyd's that's right yeah yes my god that's that is quick actually that is because um console me is one of you know it was one of the best album um best tracks on the album Boston Steve yeah and um so that was that was so when you started to bring that together, which was the following year, did did all the songs just all fit into place very quickly? Um well we started writing songs and you know, sort of um they they just came very fast and and you know, sort of furiously and um yeah, so it was I think it was, we were just so naive that we didn't think about stuff. Do you know what I mean? It just, whilst other people might have, you know, gone, oh, I'm not sure about that G minor there. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? We were just like, hey, bash, bish, bash, bosh, yeah. Uh, why don't we have a this or have a that? And it was just just like that. Yes. Yeah. We, just, we, we, had a, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, well, absolutely. It, it it did sound like fun, but then you got a John Peel session as as yeah. quickly, very quickly as well. And I I do remember, I do remember him reading out a note that the band had sent him, which was quite silly. And I remember him being slightly embarrassed when he read it, but he also thought it was quite cute as well. Can you remember writing to John Peel? I can't remember doing that, but I will research that. Um, that is a very fuzzbox thing to do. Yeah. Um, send, sending a note but that session what I really do remember there's a, a couple of things the first one so when we just couldn't believe that you know so it had happened and then so we're in the studio and because all all of our songs were so short um we there was extra time that needed filling and we we're going but we haven't got anything else you've got all the songs <laughs> that we've written that that's it <laughs> that is it and uh they were like well isn't there anything else you can think of and I went well uh, we do do an acapella version of Bohemian Rhapsody when we're in the car <laughs> and they said okay do that and literally they set a microphone up in the middle of Maid of Owl's studios and we were running around this microphone being lunatics doing Bohemian Rhapsody and when it went out on John Peel, um, post bag next week, he said, wow, the first box session, I've never had a response, anything like it. He's saying, you know, so the Bohemian Rhapsody thing, 50% of people absolutely love it. 
and 50% think it's an absolute travesty. <laughs> and then he, then he read out some of the comments, you know, so, never in my life have I heard. It was like, so, <laughs> it's like points of view. It was hilarious. Yes. I was actually quite proud that it, it um, caused such, you know, so if you're loved and hated in equal measure, that's a good good sign. Yes. That's a, because, you know, everyone's talking about you. You're not bland. You... That, obviously, that was kind of the early 90, uh, yeah, 86, wasn't it? And it was, kind of, I suppose this was a time when I was very keen on John Peel. So I'd always record a lot of his shows on my trusty TDK uh, D90 cassettes. And, um, yeah, I suppose it was, it was kind of, you'd have to listen to all those shows quite a few times because all the all the material that he played was new, so it was quite... And there seemed to be that around that time that he was always playing either, either Cutler and um, Daft... Oh, I loved him, yeah. And Daft Bloggy from the, the Welsh community as well and the Bundu Boys. So it was yeah. kind of... And obviously there was the Smiths and the Fall, but there was a lot of other... The early rap stuff with Roxé Chante and LL Cool J and Public Enemy, I seem to remember, yeah. sort of appearing with great enthusiasm. So, yes, so then... When you, you signed with Robert Lloyd's Vindaloo Records and, um, yeah, and started to put the album together, how quickly did that all sort of shape up? Um, it was pretty quick. Um, we used to, so we booked studio time at night because it was cheaper. So um, it was done over probably two weeks, I'd have thought. Yes. And whose idea was it to call it Boston, Steve Austin? Um, I think it, I don't know who, who came up with it. It might have been Joe, but I can't remember, to be honest. But it, it was definitely, you know, sort of a unanimous decision. Yes. And I guess in the 70s, Steve Austin was quite a big character, wasn't he? He was the bionic man, wasn't it, if I can remember? Well, it it, it was um, a Birmingham phrase for great, Boston, Steve Austin. It means that, you know, everything's, you know, it's something is fab. Right. Blimey. And did all the songs, because there's, you know, I have to say there's a lot of classic indie songs on there, from Love is the Slug to um, XXX. Set. Yeah, and then rules and regulations—they're the ones that sort of really stand out. Were they? Did they come together really quickly? Um. Oops. Sorry, I've just dropped my thing. Um. Yeah. Um. I mean, XX and rules were some of the first things that we we wrote. Um. After the first gig, so. Um, yeah, it, gosh, it's so difficult to remember. What yeah, well, it, it's probably 25 years ago now, actually. That, that particular. And the, the album cover, it is another classic, isn't it? Which actually I went yeah. to the board as well. So, did, who put that together? Oh, that was Andy Airfix. And basically, he it was a really cool idea. Um, he set that the paint by numbers thing up in his studio and got people to come there's some famous people um i can't remember who off the top of my head but um there was you know so famous people just colored in bits of it and that's why it just wound up being this organic thing 
where you know so if people would just contribute a bit of paint coloring in excellent no it's a, it was a very striking you know, album of its time i mean and the font for fuzzbox as well was you know really nice yeah the whole thing came together so when that came out obviously record sale i mean it was a big seller wasn't it um i don't know how much it sold but it you know so we certainly were popular yes and Vindaloo Records, how did they cope with suddenly having a, a band on the label that was it had sort of hit chart band success? Um, I, I, do you know, I, we, we were so sort of just doing our thing. I, I really wouldn't know. Yes. Did you, were you touring much at this stage? Oh, uh, all the time. Yes. And was that sort of changing and improving? Did it become a bit more comfortable because obviously you must have been headlining more than you were at the beginning well yes and you know so we so if obviously we started off sort of not being able to play very well and then you know so that sort of I don't know how how it's stuck and I think it's misogyny if I'm actually honest but um obviously we improved a lot and you know now when I hear some of our live shows just think do you know, we weren't bad. I mean, obviously, we weren't like, you know, sort of yes or something like that. But, you know, we weren't bad at all. Yes. Well, I know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure at the time it must have been fantastic. I must admit, I never saw the band live. I don't know if you ever came to Norwich. Oh, we did. God. And I call myself a fan. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you know, I saw, various bands, I saw various bands like the Janitors and... You might you know, have been busy. Yeah, Terry and Jerry, God, huge, huge bands of the time. And I missed the Fuzzbox, who I loved. So your single, the, the summer single sensation that came out with Ted Chippington, Rockin' yeah. Rita, whose idea was that? That was um, Rob Lloyd's. His, his, his Colonel, Colonel Parker moment. We'll put a single together because that again got quite a lot of airplay, and Ted was quite a character at that time as well. He was. Was that a lot of fun putting that together? Uh, yes, it was. And you know, sort of, we did our sort of fifties stuff, and you know, sort of, um, which was you know, good fun. Um, yeah, it was fun time. Yes. Did you ever tour Europe or even America? Uh, we toured, um, we went to Germany, Belgium, Holland, uh, where else did we go? Um, we went to America. Yeah. That's as an indie band, yeah. And how did you find America? Because most people I've interviewed always, they don't have a great time going to America. They think they're going to have a good time. They don't. They come back and split up. How did you find them, the American moment? Um, well, I, I actually found it quite interesting. Um, we... <laughs> um, the, I don't know how to condense this. Um, we had... Unusual reactions sometimes. Um, so the crew weren't used to having female artists 
and found it very difficult to get their heads round. Um, and they, yeah, they, um, yeah, they found females difficult yes. to get with. They made some inappropriate statements and, you know, sort of all sorts of things. But we dealt with it, you know, so we're feisty little madams we were. There was um, the tour manager who we just loathed. Um, he started off by singing to Victoria, Mamaree's warm, soft and round with brown areoli. And we were just like, right. Oh, my God. That, I know. That, that. <laughs> Cool. And then we were in an Italian restaurant, and you know you you like the papers to to the biscuits, yeah. Um, so we we did that, and this was after he'd sung this song, and he said, "If you set fire to those, I'm leaving." We just all just very quickly rolled them up and set fire. <laughs> just like, <laughs> bye. Yes. Off you go. Missing you already. Um, yeah, crikey, that is true. Was that promote in Boston, Steve Austin or Big Bang? Yeah, it was. It, it was, was that one, yes. Yeah, because I was just suddenly realised, because that, that, in the 80s there was there was like the mainstream charts, which was sort of that Trevor Horn-esque kind of production. Then there was the indie stuff, which obviously was so far um, removed. And, and, and then we got into the political world that was Red Wedge and uh, just... Being an indie band. Do you really think that Trevor Horn's music is that far removed? Yeah, because... I, I think that production sound, when you hear it, and most people are trying to remove that, that you know, I know David Bowie's couple of albums in the 80s got remixed or remastered um, a year or so ago to try and kind of remove. I thought, I think it just has a very, it sounds more dated than indie music, really. I think it just has that, blimey, you know, that ABC, I don't know, Duran Duran you know, Dire Straits, Tina Turner, there is something really, yeah, I, th I find it quite distinct and slightly off-putting, really, because it was so sharp. I don't know, you, you're a musician, you probably understand the production and what that, I don't know. Well, you see, I don't know, you see, I've got this thing about, if you if you look at the evolution of, of music and the democratisation of music, computer music, opened up music to a lot of people um, that weren't necessarily musical in a playing technical way but could produce music in a different way um, so in some respects technology is more punk than punk um, because you know so it, it enables people to to access music from a different different perspective but that that's me yeah no I can I can completely get that and I can sort of you know I suppose early human league I suppose it was it was that big production sound that you know wasn't you pardon it's not you it, <laughs> but it was just that, yeah, I suppose being an indie kid, it was definitely something like there was the, the Smith, the June Brides, the go-betweens. It was, it was kind of quite different. And then when you heard Tina Turner's steamy windows and private dance and, and then, you know, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, it just, it, I know they didn't all get produced by Trevor Horn, but there was definitely a fashion for a certain producer. And, and then David Bowie's albums, um, Never Let Me Down and Tonight, you know, sound, you know, I think... A couple of years ago, they got re 
remixed and remastered to sort of take out a certain drum sound. Uh, is it reverb or something? So um, it sounds a bit more organic. I suppose that was the thing about it. Sometimes indie music at that time sounded a bit more organic. And um, But that's, yeah, I suppose it's kind of interesting. Yes, that that's... Um, I was like, oh God, I don't know where we were going with that one, actually. I've completely lost the track, actually. I was talking about the early, mid-80s. Yes. So as we trucked on through the 80s, <laughs> and yeah. there, there was the, and then the sort of, you did America, which was, which obviously was better than most bands because you didn't split up, which is always what normally most people say. They come back from America and, and they break up because it kind of destroys them. I suppose that was what I was I was thinking. There were, yes, the 80s, that was what I was thinking. God, it was only 25 years ago. But, you know, during that period, we all had the, not, I mean, the royal we, but there was, there was bands like, um, there were certain albums, you know, Susan Vega, Tracy Chapman, Michelle Schott. And so there was a lot more, I think, a lot more female artists, women artists coming through. And there was, like the bangles that sort of hit, don't they? And they were on top of the pops. And, they, and then, you know, the fuzz box. And then a lot of indie bands, it didn't have that punk thing, which was quite blokey when you sort of look at the punk, you know, a lot of the punk bands. I know there was like the slits and x-ray specs, but, you know, then you sort of see the Joe Strummers and, you know, um, Sham 69s and Johnny Rotten, who is a bit, yeah. bit of a bloke now, isn't he? Um, so it's, yeah, it it did have a different vibe to it and I just wondered if if you felt like you were slightly you know at that time sort of pioneers I suppose in in that world because there'd been like everything but the girl but there was just one woman there Tracy but you were sort of quite a unit weren't you well there's only been one all girl playing band who's had a top 20 hit since us god in yeah is that banana rama no no all I meant playing band. Oh, playing, cheesy, crazy. Um, Heim, Heinen, Heinen. Oh, Heim, or something. Yeah, like... Heim. Yeah. H I M. Oh, interesting. My God, that's that's one of those facts I can reel out at parties, and no one will be at all interested. But anyway, that's that's just my social life. Um, <laughs> interesting. That's really good. So then. The, the second album, everyone loves the second album, don't they? How did how did the band cope with the dying, you know, like, because obviously no one has a plan that it's going to really happen, do they, um, you know, being slightly yeah. successful in music? So it's a bit of a shock, however much you think, oh, it might happen. Probably 90% of people, 95% doesn't. So when you're one of the few people who go, my God, you know, because mostly people just play in front of their friends, family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them live. But they suddenly play in front of strangers who know your music and go to Europe and even America. You know, it's quite something, isn't it? And being on the front of the NME and John Peel sessions. So how were you dealing with fame, fatal fame, as Morrissey once sung? Um, I just, I, for me, Maggie Fuzzbox and... Maggie Fuzzbot still for me is almost like a character that, you know, I I do sometimes. Um, so if I was, and I think all of us, in fact, um, you know, we didn't move to London. We didn't go to a lot of big showbiz parties and stuff. We didn't do all of that kind of thing. We did our music thing. And then, you know, we hung out with our friends in Birmingham. We kept it all very real. 
Yes. But Birmingham had quite a showbiz vibe to it, didn't it? A little bit. Yeah, but I, 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 I used to, you know, sort of do what I always did, which was, you know, sort of go to the pot of beer, play um, the driving game and the the slot machine, and um, then go to, you know, an indie club, and yeah. that was it. Because one thing, what what was quite interesting, having done these interviews, is that a lot of those bands from the 80s indie scene, the one thing that slightly knocks them out after a few years being together and releasing a couple of albums is the music scene changed a lot in about 88, which was kind of, I suppose, when Ecstasy came along. So a lot of people were mm. then sort of very excited about Ecstasy. And, um, yeah, suddenly it was all Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, Primal Screams, Soup Dragons. There was, there, there was definitely Let's Dance, which kind of, you know, the Smiths had broken up in 87 who had felt like they'd were quite a you know major band in the 80s and then you know that there was the go-betweens and june brides and orange juice had been and gone so that that kind of indie sound was very much of that period and i mean i I know you didn't quite have that indie sound but you were quite close to it so when you were bringing you know going into the studio to do the follow-up did that feel like a bit more pressure because then that's when you signed a wea and a major well, the second album was really quite easy to do, but when it came to the third, um, you know, because we got together when, you know, the girls, the younger girls were 15 um, when when the band started. And by that time, they were, you know, sort of in, in their early 20s. And you changed so much between 15 and, you know, so 19, 20, um, you know, so you're almost a different person. And, you know, so I was older than them. And we all had, diff- you know, we split up because of musical differences, believe it or not. And, um, you know, so Vix wanted a solo career as well. And, you know, so if we just... We, you know, so we all had different sort of musical tastes yes but did you i mean because because quite a few people who i know the red guitars and the railway children both signed to a major i think it was virgin records and things didn't go well i mean they they certainly had a lot of pressure from different people management to to sort of change their style and do things they really didn't want to do and it was like the fun had gone and i think both had sort of decided enough was enough so they split up how did you find working with you know a major and also your production values on your videos were huge well we we realized that we'd sold our souls to the devil and we just laughed about it um we you know so we we realized sort of pretty early on in the second production of the second album that you know there's just nothing to do with those we were a product and this is true of a lot of bands um when you know sort of particularly in the old system and this is why I was saying about the democratization of music um and technologies actually sort of helped artists retain who they are um so so if we we realized you know sort of that some of it just was controlled by the record company and that was that yes and there was a, there was a, there's three songs on that second album 
which I think are fantastic. And you, you know, it'd be interesting to know what you, your memories of them. I really loved Self, Irish, yeah. Irish Bride as well, because that was such an unusual song, um, an international rescue. I guess everyone says that, don't they? But Irish Bride, was that a song that you enjoyed doing or do you think, oh God, I wish he hadn't mentioned that. That was the worst song ever. <laughs> um, no, I think Irish Bride um, was, again, I was saying about, you know, sort of my parents are Irish and so Irish music was very much in our house. So that is very much based on Irish music. And, um, you know, I wrote it about my mum and I I really like that song. Yes, well, I, I you know, have a certain mel- romantic melancholia, I suppose, my, my, my favourite state of mind. And it has a sort of really nice, poignant feel to it. So I, I've always liked it, but I was never sure, because sometimes I've once or twice said, oh, I really like that song, and people will go, I hate that song. It's like, okay, let's skip that one. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, you just think, oh, yeah, okay, sorry, no, that brings back bad memories. And self, that's a huge number, isn't it? Massive. Yeah. Well, we we just we just done um, a reworking of that um, with Melanie Williams um, doing some guest vocals on it, and uh, it's produced by Mike Bennett of Ball Fame. Um, so it's uh, yes, it's it's an interesting little song, and I think it. It works in so many different ways. Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a good song, but you didn't write, you didn't telephone. A little day today. Yes, classic. Morrissey could have sung that. All right, isn't that country really stunning? We loved that one. Yes, uh, so that was good. I mean, the album did quite well. I would have thought. Yes, it did. Yeah. So then, because most bands have a five-year narrative. You had a five-year narrative. What happens after that as we, we go into the 90s? Do you mean what did I do after the band? No, did, did you all come together and have a moment to say, actually, I'm not, not really enjoying this, or did you just not turn up at the pub one day for a meeting? I just, because I'm... Yeah. Every, it, every... It, it just, like I said, Vix wanted to be a solo artist. We knew that whilst we were recording stuff for the, the third album. And it was pretty obvious it was just, you know, it was a natural thing. There was no big drama. To be honest, I didn't know, and I call myself a music fan, there was going to be, there was a third album. Oh, right. We didn't finish recording it. Ah. Oh. There are a couple of tracks from it. Right. Okay. Sorry, because I think, oh my God, my research, which is basically just looking at Wikipedia, um, but also from memory, <laughs> from memory as well. Thinking, gee, a third album. Christ, quick. Yeah, there was. <laughs> We were writing a third album. Right. And then it just, was it just, did you all, because when I was, I, I was talking to um, a guitarist with the band James and he said this was in the 90s at their kind of height and they were around in a swimming pool in Spain and he just said, why don't we break up? We just all really hate each other. And everyone went, oh, thank God for that. Thank, great. Let's just all walk. You know, it, so that was their mm. moment where they broke up and had to spend 10 years not seeing each other before thinking, Ooh, perhaps we'll get back together. So I just wondered if there was a feeling of, oh, actually, I could just do with a break, really. No, it's just a, a natural sort of thing, and you know. Yes, that? that is life, and as you say, you know that 
in those formative younger years, even though you feel very grown up when you're in your teens. You're so not. <laughs> really, really not. <laughs> but you think you do. Um, it's all not you personally, but you know. Yes, the teen years, they're quite tricky, aren't they? But yeah, so did you then in the 90s, as, as um, did you just sort of give music a bit of a miss at that stage? Um, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so um, very briefly, um, I witnessed a murder and I had to go into hiding. So um, any musical ambitions which I had, I did start writing other stuff, um, had to be put on hold. Oh, my God, that is the most awful thing ever. Jesus. It wasn't very nice. No. Bloody hell, I get... Crikey, that is a bit of a a moment, isn't it? My yeah. God, that's something like um, God, what's that? Martin Scorsese, The Goodfellas. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that, but it was. Um, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a, a difficult period. Bloody hell, more like a difficult decade. Did you ever during that time? Um, did you sort of occasionally look at Britpop and think, oh, shit, we should have been there. We could have been doing that. Well, I worked with um, Fuzz Townsend um, and we produced some sort of dancey stuff, which was really good at the time. Yes. God, the name. Fuzz Townsend. He was, he was in Pop Elite itself. Oh, oh yes. Yes. Blimey. And, and loads of stuff. Yeah. Let. That's cool. And then, as we trucked through the 90s, hopefully you came out of hiding. God, that sounds horrendous, actually. Then you bring the band back to, you, you have a few reunions, don't you? Yeah. And did that feel quite enjoyable? Or Well, it wasn't, it wasn't it, difficult. You know, everyone moves on and everyone's, you know, sort of got their own, what they want to do and... You know, Joe and I were a lot more esoteric than Victoria and, you know, just didn't quite gel. Yes. Again, sort of, you know, stylistically. Yeah, because I do remember it was sometimes difficult getting hold of the Fuzzbox records and they used to sort of appear on some strange record labels. I remember there was a collection once that came out which was on a label called Yeah or something like that. Fuzz God. and Nonsense, which was like 2000. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuzz and Nonsense, yeah. Yeah, and then you brought out various compilations on Cherry yeah. Red Records. So do, so when you reformed just a few years ago, mm -hmm. well, almost last decade or this decade, did that sort of, because that was a di very different band then, wasn't it? Well, not totally different, but there was just you and Vix. So did that feel a bit better, like, oh, yes? This well, Vix and I... I mean, when Joe, because Joe, we, we did a tour in 2010 um, and that was sort of with some other musicians and um, and then, of course, Joe died um, and Vix and I thought, oh, we can't really do the band without Joe. And then, so it was time went on, we thought maybe we can and so so we did and so we're still sort of doing stuff. Yes. And did that feel, I mean, obviously Joe Dyer must have been absolutely horrendous as well. Did that 
shift your sort of feelings towards the band as in I don't know sometimes as with all with all of us you know you you have ups and downs with people and um, suddenly something drastic happens and you feel like oh I just can't be bothered to hang on to the past so much with little gripes so I just wonder if that sort of made the band feel a little differently towards each other well I, I just think sort of Vix and I sort of we look at Fuzzbox, again, both of us, like it's an external sort of project. It's, you know, when we write for Fuzzbox, it's for that particular, you know, sort of set of memories and set of people that we write for. Um, you know, it's still obviously us writing it, but, you know, sort of I, my own sort of music is very different from Fuzzbox music, if that makes sense. Yeah. But but sometimes I'll write a song, you know, I'll be writing and I just think, oh, that is so Fuzzbox. You know, sort of um, our next single, once lo- lockdown's finished, um, I was writing and, you know, this sort of very sort of poppy, catchy tune came into my head. I didn't want it for me because it's too sort of commercially sounding. But for Fuzzbox, it was perfect. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I guess you're almost in character, the Ziggy Stardust for the year. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it is like that. It's quite it nice. is. Yeah. And did you all, I mean, you started by saying that you, you were sort of played classical music or interested yeah. in classical. Does that, has that sort of become a bigger part of your life because often as we get older as one of those great things you know you start to develop other interests I just wondered if if your musical palette has kind of widened as well um it was always quite broad but um in lockdown I've taken up retaken up the recorder um and the 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 reason for that is Vix and I are doing a sort of 60s thing um 60s 70s thing for um a gig um and in that when you sort of look at some of the the songs from that era there's a lot of flute in it well I couldn't learn the flute but I just thought well I can learn relearn the the treble or maybe tenor recorder and those are a similar timbre to to the flute so um, I've done that. And then I, I really started to enjoy it. And I had my first lesson the other day. And um, so and I started writing a piece of classical music. Because if you do Trinity, you can compose your own. And so, yeah, I've, I, I wrote, I've written my first classical piece for a treble recorder. Blimey, you're never too old to learn. This is very exciting. First box, first box does prog rock. I remember, <laughs> I do remember. I think it was the sort of seventies. There was a lot of bands that would just do an album with the Philharmonic, including Deep Purple, which always seemed like okay, we must do a. An, I suppose it might have been a contract, but also it probably was ego and I don't know having too much money and drugs. But thinking, yes, we're going to record with the Royal Philharmonic, Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water. You know, I'd love to. I mean, I love those, you know, so the um, Pete Tong, was it, did the Ibiza Classics done by orchestra. Yes, they were doing that. I love it. I know. Well, they were doing those in um, Blicklin, which is the uh, one of those national 
home, you know, one of those stately homes, that's it, you know, where people go. And they used to have concerts, well, they probably do, still do every sort of summer, like people like Christopher and um, Cliff Richard and, and uh, all those, and Tom Jones, obviously. They always have Tom Jones at those, and, and Jules Holland. But it was quite interesting because you can see the demographic is changing and them having to think, who is kind of a safe bet that's going to appeal to a certain audience who aren't going to kick off and cause too much aggro and it's like people who want to kind of live in their past a bit make it a bit jolly but not take lots of drugs so you don't really want Stormzy you know do you or grime at one of those stately home gigs but you want a, a nice bunch of 50 somethings who you know get a bit of a head rush just you know sitting down or standing up too fast but not literally <laughs> taking too many drugs and so yes they had Pete Tong doing uh, you know, they had the classical music doing the, the kind of the Ibiza classics, which I think yeah, yeah, thought the entire country. And I think, and I had friends who went, oh, it was marvellous as you sort of, you know, ate your cucumber sandwiches and yeah, all those kind of stuff. But I think, you know, so if, again, you know, so if classical music um, is, is perceived as being, you know, so if not of, of common people, but when you actually look at, you know, a lot of classical music, um, you know, composers drew from folk music, the pop songs of the time, yeah. and then wrote around it. It is very, very common, if you like. Um, and the themes within a lot of operas, I, um, I love opera, um, you know, so if a lot of them... Are, are about common people and you know so if I just think I'm use the word a lot the democratization of of arts and and you know so, so-called high art and low art I don't I don't believe in that it's just art yes this is this is true it is I know it's um it's kind of silly really isn't it because Shakespeare's basically it really is. Shakespeare is basically the EastEnders, isn't it, of the day? It was just lots of people running in and out, having missed, mis <laughs> yes, mistaken well, identity. Apart from they didn't, oh, no, they might have had a pub. Who knows? I, I don't know whether you watched um, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. No, I didn't. I missed those, actually. Well, they're on Netflix. And Better Call Saul, the writing in that is, I've described it Shakespearean. It is incredible the stories and sort of the way you know sort of the you, when you analyze the characters that you know their flaws and it is the writing is in bloody credible for you know a, a for a tv show it is just awesome yeah and, you know so it, honestly better call soul is just one of the best things ever done ever and Bob Odendirk, or whatever his name is, I'm just in love with his, his soul. Um, but it is just, and it's all around sort of drugs. And, you know, sort of, it, it's contemporary life. Well, it's set in the 90s, but um, it is just amazing. And again, you know, so if, if that was, you, you could, you can easily sort of see how the, this is how Shakespeare would have written. He would have been talking about all this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Shakespeare wasn't writing about dinosaurs. No. He was writing about stuff that was happening. He did. He was, he was, on, it. He was on it, wasn't he? Now, look, what would, what would you say 
to uh, your 18-year-old self starting out? You know, if you could have whispered something to them. Actually, you weren't, yeah, because you were a bit older than 18. I, I was 20. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could have just whispered, you thought, oh, look, I'll just give you a little bit of advice. I won't bore you as an old person talking to a young person, but I'll just say, you know, just, you know, ignore it if you want to, and obviously most people would. But if you could have, you know, over your decades of kind of experience, oh, my it's, God. It's, it's quite easy. You know, so don't take it so seriously and just a day at a time. You can't predict the future. The past is you're never going to change. All you have is now. Yes. Was there anything you kind of regret with the band? Was there anything that you thought, yeah, we could have, we could have manoeuvred? Yeah, I do. I, I, I regret choosing, you know, sort of when we had the opportunity um, on the third album, choosing the, the single that we chose, um, we should have chosen the other one. But that's about it, really. Um, and the only reason that I regret that is that I think it would have been better, um, ra rather selfishly, um, it would have been better for us to be seen to have been a bit more progressive. And also, I think so if it would have made things easier for me to, to move on. Um, but that's that's the only you can't you can't change the past and would be's and could have been well you don't know you don't know what the consequences of you know the other decisions might have been yes was there was that single because um mystical mythical uh, third third album was that your loss my game yeah yeah was yeah. that the one I'm now going to yeah. have to track that down, aren't I? Because I have no idea what this sounds like. So, You Lost My Gain. And the, the song that I wish we had have released was called You. I don't know whether that's on YouTube or anything. Oh, blimey. I've got homework. God. Have you managed to sort of put out any of these kind of... The, yeah. The, the, some of them are on the compilations. I don't know which. And uh... Oh, I'll have to track that down. This is exciting. Well, look. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And when I, um, yeah, and so you've got stuff in the in the pipeline, sort of um, to come out. Well, we've got we've got something um, coming out um, on the twelfth of June. When's that? When's the twelfth of June? Oh. Tomorrow. <laughs> 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 I'm a bit freaked out. It's June, actually. I keep thinking, oh Christ, we're halfway through oh, the year. Yeah, it's it's on the twelfth of June, and it's a cover of X-ray Specs. I can't do anything, and it's for Polyfest because Polyfest won't be happening this year, so we're doing it virtually. And so our contribution is, I can't do anything. And that was me in conversation with. Maggie Dunn from We've Got a First Box and we're going to use it. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to contact me for some random reason, just make it nice though. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Always nice to hear from you. Anyway, these shows have also been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. We love Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>